Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. The competition is fierce as sports cars lap one of the greatest circuits in the world. Circuit De La Sarthe, better known as Le Mans. The grueling 24-hour race pushes the competitors and their machines to the absolute limits of durability and outright performance. The year is 1953, and something is unique about the number 18 Jaguar D-Type when it pulls into the pits. With every driver change, the pilot downs a glass of brandy before getting into the car. The fans are about to witness the only recorded drunk victory in the history of the sport. This is the story of James Duncan Hamilton, a true gentleman's racer. I just want to get it out of the way right now. In no way at all are we condoning driving under the influence of alcohol 
or drugs or anything. All right. Do Absolutely it in your not. house. Do it in your house. Have a good time. Stay stay off the streets. That's Even right. go that, to drive in Forza or yeah, iRacing. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, that being said, we all think that this is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, please do not drink and drive. Yeah, um, don't. A lot of senseless accidents and needless pain is caused because of it. Do not do it. All right. So do not drink and drive. Uh, we are not condoning drink and driving. Uh, this is a hilarious story. We wanted to take a break from some of the heavier uh, subjects that we've been covering recently. Seems like there's been a lot of deaths, a lot of <sighs> oh murders. My God. Yeah, we um, went from from Hell's Angels, the most violent story I've ever read, <laughs> yeah. into Senna, which is the most, it was both optimistic, but also heartbreaking story ever. Mm-hmm. So the last two months now have been pretty taxing on yeah. the old uh, mental health there. So we just wanted to have a little breather. Cool, and we hope that uh, you guys enjoy it. That being said, Nolan, how yes, will we sir. jump into the story of James Drunken Duncan Hamilton? Yes, <laughs> but before that, let me just introduce. Welcome to Pass Gas, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just let you drive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just take the wheel. Yeah, let me drive. I'm good. Um, uh, my name is Nolan <laughs> Sykes. I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts and good friends, James Pumphrey, Ooh. and Joe Weber. Fired up. More, right, more fired power, up. baby. More yeah. power, baby. <laughs> lightning. Let's get lightning, into it. Lightning, lightning. <sighs> James Duncan <laughs> Hamilton was born on April 30th, 1920 in Cork, Ireland. At the age of six, he and his family moved to West London. Anyone who knew James or Duncan, as he would be known, would tell you how the only thing that complemented his colorful and outgoing personality was his extraordinary talent for most things. He was just one of those guys that was good at everything. That's actually the case for most Jameses. Uh, I have heard that. Just really good kissers, really great at playing guitar, awesome at skateboarding, um, great drawers, uh, especially graffiti and street art. Um, How are you at the grill? How are, yeah. I'm great grill master, perfectly. So you would cooked. say that your your meat game is pretty strong. Meat game strong, although I don't eat a lot of meat these days. Can you surf? Can surf. I can hang glide. I can paraglide. Pretty much do all the glides. I can hydroglide. Um, I know how to power sail. glide. <laughs> I can power glide. <laughs> That's a car joke. Um, <laughs> this is a car podcast. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Hamilton was sent to Brighton College at the age of 13. His father sent him to the Aeronautical School, which was in the next town over from where they lived. Duncan tried to convince his parents that he needed a car, but they objected out of fear of him driving on the open road at age 13. So instead, <laughs> he got them to agree to let him build a car instead, which was clearly the safer alternative. <laughs> 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 Once the car was oh, okay. By the way, I, <laughs> I I lived pretty close to my junior high, and uh, I really wish my parents let me build a car to drive there at age thirteen. My parents let me been. build a uh, like, I guess soapbox derby car, and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to like f- make a like a rack and pinion to steer it, and so my solution was to put foot. Um, 
pedals on yeah, yeah. A, a two by four and then just yeah. steer it with my feet. Do you have like a rope connected to it too? Uh, my cousins no, had, just had a thing like just that. Just using my feet. There you go. Wow. Let's see here. <laughs> Once the car was built, he called the entire household out to watch his maiden voyage. Though when he went to stop, he instead dra- drove straight through a, the garden fence as he had forgotten to connect the brakes. So not we're already off, off to, to a, a great goofy start. start. Yeah, we're already full of guffaws already. There's a Geiger counter for for <laughs> for uh, goofs and gags. This it'd be just going. <laughs> <laughs> Once the car was rebuilt, uh, Duncan con- convinced his parents to insure the car. When racing it against a friend for the first time, he ended up in a police chase that saw him driving down an alleyway and ducking underneath his big steering wheel and then drove the car underneath a trailer like he was in James Bond or Fast and the Furious or something, or the transporter, uh, to escape the cops. Shortly after, his homebrew masterpiece caught fire and unfortunately was totaled. It was around this time that he also started getting into racing. Yeah, that's a good time to get into racing. Yeah, (laughs) running from the cops, having your car burned down. Let's go to the races, boys. (laughs) Uh, Auto races were being held in Brooklyn's, a small town outside of West London. I'm from Brooklyn's. (laughs) (laughs) My name's, uh, yeah, he's Captain London or Captain England. That's where he's from, is from Brooklyn's. As a broke young student, the only way he could get into the racetrack was to sneak in. So each weekend morning, he would show up early in some overalls and a full water bucket. He would simply walk <laughs> through the line saying, mind your back, chums, while water splashed everywhere. He got into the track the same way that holding a news camera or a high-vis vest and a clipboard can get you into just about anywhere. Hey, do you see that? guy every day carrying a bucket of water for no reason what's that guy's deal <laughs> i don't know man but he tells me to mind his back so i don't ask, i don't ask any questions oh, okay sounds like he's doing his job yeah he knows <laughs> what he's doing <laughs> while he was at the track he had the chance to mingle with the mechanics and learn about the intricacies of racing conveniently his college classes had been moved to brooklyn's where brooklyn's at which meant his parents <laughs> would have to buy him a car as it was simply too far to bike Once he got his car, he instantly tried racing it, hitting a curb and flipping it twice. Oh, (laughs) jeez. The next car they gave him, he blew up the engine. After the second car, his parents just decided to make him move to Brooklyn's instead (laughs) as they couldn't keep buying him cars. But that was all right with him as it meant he could spend even more of his free time at the racetracks. And his college classes meant that he would get even more hands-on experience with airplanes. It didn't take long for his stalking around the racetracks to pay off. He was soon about to have his first chance to prove his driving prowess, even if he didn't actually have any up until this point. One day, a film crew came by the track with eight race cars. He was standing nearby, and a mechanic of the crew handed him some goggles and a helmet to hold. Duncan put them on to impress people and was mistaken for one of the drivers by the director. When the director shouted, action stations, Duncan was pointed towards a race car, push started, and sent (laughs) off on the track. In the movie, a bus driver had found himself on the racetrack going the opposite direction, and the drivers were supposed to dodge the bus. While driving, the goggles fell and completely obscured his vision. By the time he fixed them, the other cars were stopping, and Duncan never saw the bus. When he came back into the pitch, the director said, wonderful, you missed the bus by three inches. 
Did you think, do you think he could do it again? This guy is like Mr. Bean. This is yeah. unreal. All right. We're now like two paragraphs into this story and he's, there's been cars on fire. There's been flip cars. There's been blown up engines. There's been accidentally in a movie on a racetrack. This is absurd. Like this is like Mr. Magoo stumbling through life crap. Mr. Magoo, uh, Dennis the Menace, Mr. Bean, all yeah. in one person. Yeah, a little bit of Bart Simpson in there, maybe. Oh yeah, for sure. Bart Bart Simpson, strong Bart Simpson energy. Yeah, yeah. By 1939, the war had come, and Duncan had enlisted in the Royal Air Force. Uh, when being trained on the difficulties of flying military aircraft, he was told by the instructor. Remember, this is a valuable <laughs> aircraft. We can always get more pilots, but aircraft are scarce. So he pointed up the throttle slowly to keep the tail from swinging on takeoff. Unfortunately, he was a bit too slow and, when and was unable to get the plane off the ground before the end of the runway. He managed to pilot the plane directly into an extension of the mess hall that was under construction, oh destroying God. the plane and the extension. Three days later, he received a letter that read, um, your services are no longer required. Oh, Duncan completely destroyed the porridge room. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan decided to join a different branch of the military. He couldn't do RAF because of the incident, so he joined the Navy Air Program. Why not? <laughs> yeah. As soon as his initial training was done, he deployed onto the British carrier, the HMS Glorious, off the coast of Norway. Obviously, he was excited to get deployed and went down to the bar to temper some of his excitement with some drinks. While he was Hell down yeah. there, an explosion rocked the ship and threw him to the floor. He accidentally lit some dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> and as Duncan's luck would have it, he managed to join the Norwegian fleet the same day the German invasion of Norway had begun. In the now pitch black ship, he was led back onto the deck and into the lifeboat as Gloria sunk behind him. After about 12 hours, he was picked up by the cruiser, the HMS Curlew. While the survivors thawed in the steam room and with a glass of rum in his hand, the shell from a German coastal battery scored a direct hit on the Curlew's bridge, crippling oh the God. ship. Oh 30 minutes later, he found himself back in the water <laughs> as the his second ship of the night sank. This is like Dunkirk. Yeah. The next ship after that managed to pick him up and safely return him to Norway. Wait, so they have a bar on a naval ship? Yeah, it seems very like old school. Yeah. I doubt they have it now. I mean, back then they like gave you a pack of cigarettes like in your uh, rations or whatever. They probably gave oh, you yeah. like, like a bottle of booze. I was watching Jarhead the other weekend. And, Dude, Jarhead's uh, decided, a great movie. I, it's, my, it's probably the... Like, one of my favorite it's like top five favorite movies for me um i love it but i definitely came to the conclusion that if i was ever in combat i would probably just start smoking you know oh, like what one thousand percent what these cigarettes are gonna kill me okay yeah. <laughs> like how you get <laughs> jaded about war by watching a movie starring jake gyllenhaal well dude Jarhead's like the best anti-war movie ever dude it's so good i love there's Jarhead. a really Maybe funny pawn stars but. meme that's like uh, an 18 year old asking if he can get like a beer and he's like nah best we can do is war <laughs> <laughs> man memes are just so funny when you like don't show them and you just describe them <laughs> uh, where I think that's a, that should be our second podcast describing memes Descri <laughs> donut describes 
Hey guys, welcome back to Dome Describes. <laughs> today we got a really good lineup. Today we're reviewing all the best memes of uh, June. Um, we haven't really had any memes this month, huh? Uh, there's that one that's uh, BC, like it's the Drake one, but with my face on it, and it oh, says yeah, BC, and sounds like this, and then it's BMP before Post Malone or BPM before Post Malone, and I'm like, see. You're already you're mastering the the format of the show. This is great. Yeah, that's now the second meme we've described uh, in this. <laughs> Soon he was reassigned to the Orkneys, which were some islands north of Scotland that were much less likely to sink. During downtime, he would mess around and make close but short friendships. It was discovered that the officers' quarters had an access panel on the roof, and you could climb into it and maneuver around the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> an obstacle course was created that involved navigating the entirety of the ceiling of the officer's quarters without getting caught. Hamilton, drunk on wine and eager to set a new time record, uh, missed one of the rafters and fell through the ceiling. And he <laughs> landed... <laughs> this man is Charlie Chaplin. Uh, he <laughs> landed in the middle of a party the captain was hosting with some other high-ranking officers. No one said a word until the captain said, Good evening, Hamilton. And Hamilton replied, Good evening, Zap. <laughs> and then turned and walked out of the room, leaving a gaping hole in the ceiling for the senior officers to stare at. I love that story. That's so This funny. guy's awesome. I love this guy already. I, I'm hoping that uh, by the end of this episode... He will be a top guy, you know, of the show, much like Smokey Eunuch. Once the war was over, Hamilton married his wife, Angela, who, it, who whom he had met during his service. The marriage came on the condition that he give up flying. So he canceled his interview with an American aviation company and proceeded to marry Angela. Both of his parents had died during the war, and his sister had died a few weeks after Christmas during childbirth, unfortunately. Yeah. So while clearing up his family's estates, he secured a job at Henley's LTD dealership. Angela's uncle was a friend with Bertie Henley, the chairman of the company who hooked him up with a job buying and selling cars at the Camberley branch. Hamilton started his racing career with an open cockpit, single-seater, two-stage blown R-Type MG that had previously been owned by Sir Malcolm Campbell, an automotive journalist who set multiple land speed records throughout the 20s and 30s. It was at his first race that Duncan met John Cooper, who was driving an abomination of two Fiats cut in half and then welded together <laughs> with steel tubes. What? <laughs> yep. <laughs> what Hamilton didn't know is that he was competing against the prototype of a car that would one day win world championship races, the Mini Cooper. Uh, we, we met Mr. John Cooper during our uh, 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 McLaren series, if that name sounds familiar to you. Also, if the phrase Mini Cooper sounds familiar to you, that's how you also know his name. <laughs> After competing at Shelsley Walsh, he saw a red 2.3-liter 35B Bugatti, and Duncan knew he had to have it. That's like a super famous uh, Bugatti that won a ton of races. If you don't know, check out the Up to Speed on Bugatti. We talk about it. Nice plug, Joe. Nice plug, Joe. After negotiating, he managed to buy the car, 
and he used it in hill climbs through the rest of the 1946 season and all of 1947. Quote, I was winning the old small trophy and what was much more important, having a lot of fun. It wasn't uncommon for Hamilton to transport his own cars to the races. He wasn't exactly making a living as a racer yet, so it was the most economical thing he could do, naturally. During the Brighton Speed Trials, Hamilton realized he was going to have to tow both his MG and his Bugatti at the same time, so he rented a trailer that fit the MG and flat-towed the Bugatti behind it. Oh no, I don't like where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) While going down a hill, he saw someone in a similar Bugatti pull up next to him and keep pace with him. Hamilton assumed it was someone admiring his race car, but soon realized that there was no one in the driver's seat as the Bugatti began to pass him. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I found it. I'm so glad. <laughs> yes. Uh, his car had unhooked itself from the truck and soared past him. The car was heading straight for a crosswalk occupied by two women. He he pit maneuvered his own Bugatti while driving a lorry and aimed it oh off the road, God. forcing the Bugatti to collide with a telephone pole. Luckily, they didn't have to call the electric company as the district manager. Uh, who oversaw telephone poles, lived in the house just next door. <laughs> That's called a dink, which I do believe in, James. No, no such thing. <laughs> there is certainly such thing as a coincidence. Uh, his most enjoyable race came later in the season when he and a few other members of the British Racing Drivers Club were invited to a road course at Zandvoort, Holland. The circuit had a pretty interesting history. The mayor of Zandvoort had convinced the German commanders during World War II that sand dunes had to be constructed in order to prevent a possible naval attack. This was just a clever ruse, though, as it employed most of the male population in Zandvoort and saved them from being sent to Germany. As a result, service roads were constructed to supply the workers during construction, and after the war, those service roads looked to be the perfect place to open a 2.7-mile racing circuit. Uh, I think Zandvoort is a really awesome course, and I'm pretty disappointed that it wasn't able to make a return this year to the F1 calendar, unfortunately, because of everything. Um, But hopefully next year... Because of literally everything. (laughs) Because of everything. Because this um, year is just what happened this year. Oh, you know everything. Everything. Uh, you know, man, that's just how it has to be. Sometimes can't be that's easy all be. the time. Yeah. Whatever it, happened to the murder hornets? I knew um, the murder hornets were getting overblown. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know, if you own a home. It can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. 
answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This was the first taste of how racing drivers were treated in mainland Europe compared to in the UK. Back home, a racing driver was considered a madman doing madman things, but it was just the opposite in Europe. They were treated as if they were next to royalty. Restaurants gave them free meals as soon as they found out they were competing in a race. Before the race began, he and a few of the other racers were given a tour of the Bulls Gin Factory. Hamilton attributes his fourth place finish in the race not only to the performance of his Maserati, but also a bit to him spending the morning at a gin factory. He went He oh, went yeah. in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> you don't go to a gin tasting in the morning. <laughs> well, little, not if you're lame, dude. Yeah. <laughs> a little while later, after a race, a group of racers noticed that they were getting exceptionally terrible service on one of the small islands off the coast of England. They were all absolutely fed up with being treated so terribly by the hotel. The final straw was when they were told that they were not allowed to wear a coat or bring any sort of luggage into the dining room during dinner. So, Ugh, awful. One yeah. star. <laughs> so Hamilton had the great idea of going outside his bedroom window with his suitcase and collecting some sleeping ducks <laughs> he had seen. Uh, what? <laughs> all in all, he collected about 15 ducks. Okay, this is, I think this is where the term get all your ducks in a row comes from. Uh, all in all, he collected about 15 ducks before he headed back in and sat down at the dining table. The head waiter angrily exclaimed, I have told you, gentlemen, suitcases are not allowed in the dining room. And as he picked up the case, of course, Hamilton had undone the latches and 15 terrified ducks poured out onto the dining room floor. A woman had been playing the accordion in the corner and decided... <laughs> that this would be the best time to play a galloping sort of tune, which fitted the circumstances perfectly. Later that night, a statue of Queen Victoria that had been out in the main square of the hotel was found in a racing driver's bed wearing lipstick, rouge, and mascara. They really knew how to deal with getting bad service. That's what you get when you don't let me bring my luggage into the dining room. You know what? I'm going to go fill this up with ducks. Catching one duck is pretty impressive, but 15? Yeah. That's persistence, dude. Yeah. That same evening, his friends <laughs> gathered in his hotel room for a bit of fun and drinking, and while trying to stop someone from throwing his clothes out the window, Hamilton slipped and fell onto the wall. The wall turned out to be so thin that his head actually fell through it, terrifying the two elderly ladies on the other side. <laughs> Joe? And they're just, they're just like probably putting on their like six layers of underwear and then he his head <laughs> pops through it's like that <laughs> well the two old ladies became more and more upset and scolded him for being a very rude boy it dawned oh. on hamilton that he was stuck in the wall so his friends had no other solution uh but to get his head out of the wall and ended up using table legs to knock the entire wall down in the end the two older ladies forgave him apparently though Hotel management, not so much. And in the morning, Hamilton and his hangover slipped out the front door, returning home to discover that his wife, Angela, had given birth to his daughter, what? Caroline. 
<laughs> Wait a minute. What? He's just out here doing duck yeah. shenanigans, throwing this his head through fathers? walls. <laughs> <laughs> his wife's giving birth. He's in labor, yeah. This is messed up, dude. Man. Going. Great uh, great prankster. Already off to a bad start as a dad. This is... <laughs> Sorry I missed your birth. I was filling a suitcase with ducks. <laughs> Smash me head through a wall. <laughs> oh, I saw two old... I can't do a British accent. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, yeah. No, let's it, hear it. Uh, okay. Uh, right then, mate. I saw two old ladies in the room next to me. I said, Cheerio. Oh, oi, my head's through the wall then, eh? Oh my! My head's to the wall now. In it, I've got a daughter now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep anyway. going. Just keep doing it. <laughs> Duncan's good friend suggested a racing partnership between the two of them during the winter of 1948 for the following season. They planned to enter a Maserati in as many events as possible. The partnership went great. And lasted multiple years where they ran in multiple Grand Prix seasons. <laughs> the 1950 season got off to a great start with the Maserati. Duncan took the car to an RAF airfield for some road tests because he had just finished a complete overall of the vehicle. After some testing, he realized that one of the front tires had started getting worn and had his mechanic replace it. Unfortunately, though, he forgot to remind his mechanic to check the air pressure in the tire before setting off resulting in the wheel tearing off from the car at about 100 miles per hour. The car did a complete somersault and threw Hamilton into the grass, where he spent a fair bit of time sliding before finally coming to a stop. The accident had managed to lock the throttle on the now-wrecked Maserati, and since it landed with some of its wheels on, uh, the Maserati took this as its chance to make a run for the hills. An eyewitness to the event summed it up perfectly, Quote, well, Gov, you lies here like you was dead, and all the lads is nodding to one another and saying, you's bought it, when all of a sudden, like, you sits up, and then after we can get to you, then before we can get to you, you stands up, staggers a bit, and then ups and after the bleeding car like you was missing a bus. Then she turns a bit sudden, like, and gives you a four-penny one. <laughs> you goes arse over top for the count. She's just about at her lot as well. She coughs a bit and then packs it in, and that's the lot for both of you. What? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I there's understand all of, that, dude. There's a lot of two-letter two, word, two letter words in there that are I've never seen before. That's the beauty of the English language, Joe. Oh, that was Shakespeare that they were quoting. I see. No. <laughs> Hamilton was transported to the hospital in the back of a pre-war Jaguar where he was diagnosed with only two broken ribs and some bruising. According to Hamilton, quote, the doctor told me my back reminded him of a rather beautiful Persian carpet upon which some thoughtless person had wiped his boots. So that's probably some road rash, I'm guessing. Great game. That was a great game. Road rash is a great game. I, uh, in high school, I downloaded an N64 emulator, and that was one of the first games I downloaded for some reason uh, and played it for maybe 20 minutes and then never touched it again. <laughs> I've, I've only played Zelda games. Do you have a Switch? Yeah. You should get Animal Crossing. I think you would like it. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
Hamilton's longtime racing driver friend Tony Holt, sorry, Tony Rolt, had invited him to <laughs> different letter, had invited him to join him in the 1950 24 hours of Le Mans. Interesting fact about Tony Rolt, he managed to escape from seven German POW camps throughout World War II. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. God. He, he's, he's really bad at not getting caught, but he's also really good at getting away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it almost seems like a sport at that point where you're <laughs> yeah. like trying to get caught so you can escape that is pretty impressive uh tony and hamilton would be driving donald healy's 3.4 liter six cylinder nash healy the race was uneventful uh with them placing fourth overall that's pretty good though fourth overall mm-hmm. they had refused to get into any sort of uh heated sprints throughout the event and only drove sensibly, which is pretty impressive that they're able to follow through on that. Their goal of driving faster when others wouldn't see them pushing the car to its limits when the track was wet and dark. That's pretty interesting. That's really smart. They missed a third place finish by a single pit stop, but they didn't really care too much because they got fourth and that's pretty good. Probably the most wholesome comment about the entire event was Hamilton saying, quote, Both our wives had been in the pits at Le Mans. And their presence had undoubtedly helped make our visit such a happy one. Hell yeah. During this time, his 20-month-old son, Adrian, had started taking an interest in driving as well. Hamilton and his son loved to sit in the driver's seat and play with the car controls, pretending the 20-month-old could drive. One day, Adrian snuck out of his nursery and climbed into the driver's seat of the Vauxhall parked in the family's garage. Adrian turned the ignition key, which had unfortunately been left in the ignition. He somehow pulled the choke and turned on the self-starter. The engine (laughs) fired up and the car moved forward, demolishing the rear of the wooden garage wall and continuing into the street until eventually colliding with a passing tractor. (laughs) Fortunately, no one was hurt. It was was clear that uh, Adrian had his dad's um, hijinks gene. Had his uh, funny bones. <laughs> in early 1951, Tony Lago gave Hamilton the chance to race in a 4.5 liter Talbot Lago Grand Prix car. It was, a, it was simply a beautiful car. And everyone seemed to agree. As Hamilton said, I really merited the description fabulous. Everyone who saw the car agreed it was amazing, and at one point, an Irish priest who had stood by in respectful silence listening to the Lago waited until the car was finally turned off to remark, Merciful saints, I don't believe it. Even the Duke of Richmond, who owned the land that the Greenwood Circuit was built on, commented about how excited he was to see the car in action. The Talbot Lago ran on methylated alcohol and was lubricated by an older style of castrol R oil, giving it a very distinct smell as it ran. The most noticeable aspect of the car was simply how low it was to the ground with only four inches of ground clearance, which at that time was not a lot. And even now it's not a lot. Um, And how low the driver sat inside of it. The driver's ears were almost perfectly level with the rear tires, providing an incredible sensation of speed behind the wheel. I would imagine that Duncan kind of smells like this car, right? Like alcohol and oil. Yeah. (laughs) During the 1952 season, Hamilton raced for HWM, which had just been acquired by Aston Martin the year before in most of the European Grand Prix. 
He still drove his Talbot Lago whenever he could in mostly Formula Libra races, which are a style of race that allows cars of various ages and types to compete head-to-head. The press was focused more on Formula 2 than Formula 1, pushing F1 into the shadows. But as usual, the press never forgot about the 24 hours of Le Mans. And Hamilton had a trick up his sleeve, as he had a love for Jaguar that would carry him all the way to being one of their drivers for that year's race. In fact, Hamilton had purchased the first C-Type Jaguar sold to a private owner and had raced it internationally, so he was pretty into Jaguars as well as being into Le Mans. The 1952 Le Mans will always be remembered for the epic drive of Pierre Levey in a Talbot Largo. Pierre was a stubborn man and he refused to allow anyone else to drive for the entirety of the race. Despite his lack of team cooperation, after 23 hours of continuous driving, He still held a commanding lead, but it was his stubbornness that would prove to be his undoing. As after an exhausting 23 hours on the course, Pierre accidentally shifted into first gear instead of third, shattering the crankshaft and ending his race near the finish and allowing Mercedes-Benz to take the lead. The money shift, dude. Yeah. Really, Hamilton didn't have much of a part to play in this race driving for Jaguar. All the Jaguars were removed from the race within the first three hours because of overheating issues. The newly designed compact cooling system for the cars had been tested at speeds of up to 120 miles an hour and did not seem to agree with the 160 mile per hour speeds being tested on the Molson straight. In Le Mans, the team can repair the car if it breaks down on the track. This rule to this day still leads to some hilarious moments where you can watch pit crews standing at the fence passing tools through the gaps as a confused driver stuck in their Hans device tries to fix their race car. Ramal is really strict about the rules of what can be repaired and when it can be repaired. If you remember in our Ford vs. Ferrari episode, we talked about how Carroll Shelby and his team got in trouble with officials due to a quick change brake rotor system that they had designed for the race. Uh, while Shelby found an exception, the rule book is normally pretty clear about what is okay and what is not okay. One of those rules being when a car is allowed to replenish its coolant slash water supply. Now, Hamilton and his friend slash co-driver Tony Rolt realized during testing that the cooling system was going to be an issue, but there simply wasn't time to redesign the body panels to accommodate a more efficient system. To last long enough to be allowed to replenish water, Hamilton would tuck himself behind a competitor's slipstream on the Molson straight, turn the car off, and allowed a slipstream to pull him down the straight at 100 miles per hour. Unfortunately, <laughs> what? Yeah. That's insane. Unfortunately, once they were allowed to refill, it was obvious that irreversible damage had been dealt and they were taken out of the race. The yeah, Jaguars, because, like, I mean, if your engine's off, like, the water pump's not on to pump the fluid <laughs> you know, uh-huh. through the engine. Like, you're just yeah. going to cook your car if you do that. Like, why wouldn't he rather just, like, shift into neutral? Yeah, Would that's that a work much better, better idea. Yeah. Though Jaguar showed a wonderful spirit about the entire ordeal, proclaiming, we'll be back next year, before the race was even over. Mercedes won that year with a really unimpressive design. It wasn't that fast, and it wasn't that innovative. But more importantly, it was very consistent. Pierre Levey would have easily won if his pride hadn't got the best of him. A major event at the 1952 Le Mans, though, was in the winner's ceremony. Typically, when a race is won, the national anthem of the country of origin would be played. But when it came time to play the German national anthem, which was still Deutschland über alles for some reason, 
Only silence was heard. Trophies and prize money were given out, but the French band refused to play the German national anthem. And when you saw a plaque erected on the stands in memory of Robert Benoit, a pre-war champion who had been executed by the Germans in 1944, it became apparent why the band protested. It was the first time that that had happened in Le Mans history, and it's pretty surprising that they didn't change their national anthem after World War II. I mean, they did eventually, but... For the 1953 24 Hours of Le Mans, Hamilton and Rolt were once again invited to race their Jaguar C-types. This time, a few changes had been made to the car, the most important being the addition of Weber carburetors and Dunlop disc brakes. The Dunlop, the Dunlop discs gave them the most competitive advantage over the competition, as everyone on the team knew they could easily make it 24 hours without having to swap out the brake rotors. This was, this was the very first race that disc brakes were used. Disc brakes are great. Yeah. Yeah. They, and I they think are. They we're are gonna great. find out that <laughs> they worked a lot better than drums. <laughs> the discs allowed them to go from 150 miles an hour to 30 miles per hour in less than 300 yards. Other cars had major issues with brake fade throughout the race, forcing drivers to overwork their gearboxes in order to preserve their brakes because they'd, they'd be engine braking. Mm-hmm. The discs were innovative at the time, as all other cars on the tracks were still trying to make do with drum brakes. The three, oh man, the triple Weber twin choke carb setup also greatly increased the torque in the low end, uh, which increased the car's pickup when it came to slowing out of corners. I They call that the six pack. Six the pack, Weber baby, six that's pack, right. dude. That's what I got. Uh, I bought that Chrysler uh, a few weeks ago. My 1952, <laughs> what year is it? 52. 52. Yeah. It's at 1952. My house. It is at your house. I'll be I'll be by tomorrow, James. Okay, uh, I think but, I might be buying a car, but you can come over ooh. whenever. Yeah. Someone made a, a triple carb intake for my Hemi engine. Uh, unfortunately, they are extremely expensive because they only made like 500 of them. Uh, but I would very much like to have a triple carb setup at some, some point. There were three race cars, uh, three Jaguar race cars, numbers 17, 18 and 19 with Hamilton and Rolt both piloting the number 18 car. Jaguar also provided a practice car, which was also for some reason given the number 18. During practice laps, Sterling Moss, one of Jaguar's reserve drivers and legendary racer in his own right, approached the team and asked if he could take one of the race cars out for a spin. Since the drivers wanted to uphold driver responsibility for their own cars in case something happened, they handed Moss the keys to the practice car with the number 18. Unbeknownst to the team, the rules of the practice at Le Mans had changed since the previous year, and teams were no longer allowed to practice in separate practice cars. And since the extra car provided by Jaguar had been given the same number 18 as Hamilton and Rolt's car, people thought that Jaguar was trying to pull a fast one on the race officials. Pit members on the Ferrari team tattled to the race officials who Ooh. upheld the rule. Of course. Uh, Narks. And just Narks. like that, Hamilton and Rolt were disqualified from the race for practicing in a practice car, even though it wasn't them. Mr. Lyons, which is a hilarious name for the team manager of Jaguar, 
obviously pointed out to the officials that the reserve driver had driven the reserve car and that no one else had used that car for any testing purposes and no rules had been broken. But they informed him that they would not listen to his defense until the next morning, the morning of the race. So Tony Rolt and Duncan Hamilton decided to drown their little sorrows in their usual way and beeline directly for the nearest pub. Both of their wives told them that they would both have to share the same hotel room that night as neither of them wanted to deal with their drunk husbands and the hangover in the morning. Luckily for them, they never even made it back to their hotel room, spending the entire night drowning themselves at the bar. Once the sun came up, the dudes decided it was probably time to switch to coffee. We were sitting there feeling pretty ill, miserable, and dejected. When a Mark 7 Jaguar drew up outside and William Lyons got out. Mr. Lyons informed the two racers that he had paid the $25,000 franc fine and they, they were allowed back in the race. It was 10 a.m. <laughs> and the flags were going to drop in exactly six hours. Both of the men were drunk and hung over at the same time and neither, ha- and neither of them had slept a wink. In true gentleman's racer fashion, they ordered some extra coffee and went back to their hotel room to c- recuperate. Oh, God. Two, I hate by, that state that you could be yeah, in where you're just like, yeah, they haven't yeah. even got to sleep yet. So they didn't even get to kind of like sleep it off a little, even mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. By 2 p.m., Hamilton felt dreadful and ordered the only medicine he knew would make him feel better. A double brandy. Oh, Same yeah. trick worked for Rolt. Sipping his glass of brandy, he waited for the race to start. Tony Rolt took the first driving shift, lapping at a steady 107 miles per hour, <laughs> holding near oh the God. front of the pack. At 7.10 p.m., Rolt brought the car in for refueling and handed it over to Hamilton. It wasn't long after taking control that Hamilton had his first interesting event. While flying down the Molson Strait at around 150 miles per hour, a bird (laughs) flew into his windshield, shattering it in half, forcing him to lean to the left for the rest of the race as he wanted to be protected. During each driver swap and pit stop, both Hamilton and Rolt would refuel with a a glass of brandy. Like brandy, like brandy, like brandy. It's like, oh, give me, give me a gallon of Orzo. I got to keep racing. (laughs) (laughs) Ferrari held the lead for a good portion of the race and then Alfa Romeo until it became obvious that the real competition was between the Ferraris and the Jaguars. While the Ferrari eclipsed the Jaguar in power, the extra maneuverability and braking power allowed the Jaguars to take the lead. The flag dropped to signal the end of the 24 hours as soon as Hamilton Crossed the line. His team placed first, successfully achieving what he described as his dearest sporting ambition. While he and Rolt argued that they were not drunk during the race, it is apparent that without the aid of alcohol, they never would have taken the checkered flag. What made it even more impressive is that by the end of the race, both of the drivers had been awake over 48 hours. (laughs) Oh my God. It is amazing what good cognac and the will to achieve an ambition can accomplish. Hamilton wrote about his experience. That's amazing. They had to. I mean, when you're nursing a hangover like that with alcohol, you maybe you're not like belligerently drunk, but you're keeping that buzz going because that's the only thing that keeps the pain away. Yeah, I had a pretty big hangover a while ago and tried to do the hair of the dog. I feel like that's a thing that you can do when you're young maybe, but like immediately I was just like, oh, well, I just ruined my whole day. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine the crap they took after 48 hours of not eating and like eating (laughs) 
like rich French food and just drinking brandy like that. <laughs> that bathroom was blown up. <laughs> yeah. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. As oh, soon God. as the race concluded, Hamilton made his way to Aperto, Portugal to compete in more Grand Prix races. Once again, <laughs> he shipped his personal car to the European mainland to compete, this time bringing his Jaguar C-Type. Hamilton set the fastest lap time during the practice laps and expected to keep his pace up until the actual race. The only difference was his tank only had 10 gallons of gas in the practice laps, while in the actual event, it would hold 40. He expected that the added weight meant his still factory Type C would be significantly slower than the competing Ferraris in the beginning of the race, but that his pace would quicken as he burned more fuel and lightened his load throughout the race. According to Hamilton, my only regret was that the car did not have disc brakes. So the race got off to a bad start. The extra 40 gallons of fuel really took its toll on the performance of his car, and to top it all off, Hamilton was struggling to pass an amateur driver because of the odd and erratic racing line the driver followed. Also, I mean, he had just won Le Mans drunk, so that probably wasn't helping him either. Repeatedly, he's probably still recovering, repeatedly he pulled up beside him and was forced to back off as the driver would unknowingly start forcing Hamilton off the track. While going into a fast right-hander, both cars made contact as Hamilton tried to pass on the inside line. While attempting to avoid the collision, Hamilton lost control and left the course. As he headed for an electrical pole at around 125 miles per hour, he was reminded of some advice he was given at Le Mans. Duncan, if you're going to have a shunt, have a neat shunt head-on. So, Hamilton turned his car in a way that it would collide with the pylon head-on, putting as much metal between the pylon and his body as possible. The accident cut the pole in half. His Type C cartwheeled, ejecting him right across the track and into a tree about 14 Ah. feet in the air before falling onto the track below. He remained conscious throughout the entire event (laughs) and immediately started trying to pull himself off the track. It was great timing too. As soon as he pulled his legs off a track, a red car tore past him so close that it actually took his boot off and uh, (laughs) before he blacked out. Jeez. That's insane. I really regret doing that slide whistle. That seems like a huge life changing. Okay, cool. No, it's his his boot came off, not his foot. Yeah, not his foot. Yeah, I know, yeah. but he also hit a tree and and blacked out, so I don't want to make light of this situation. It seems like he was really hurt. Hamilton was transported to a nearby hospital on a dock near the course, and the next thing he remembered. He was waking up on an operating table, staring at a nude reflection of himself on the chrome plating above him. The lights in the room weren't turned on, which was strange. But as it turned out, he had collided with the only power line providing power to the hospital. Nobody in the hospital spoke English except for a small child who for some reason was standing (laughs) in the operating room. (laughs) What is going on? What the hell is going on? He could only identify the man in the corner smoking a cigar as the doctor due to the butcher's apron. Why is apron the guy smoking lar- in an operating room? What? <laughs> um, it's, dude, it's different yeah, time, man. Different time. Apron and large <laughs> knife that the doctor was casually holding. When he asked for water, the staff informed Hamilton that the water was contaminated and the only thing they had was a fine selection of port wine. This is this is a fever dream. This is not... Yeah. <laughs> 
This didn't actually happen, right? Like waking I don't up think... in the dark, looking at a reflection of your gross naked body. Your chest is open. Like you, no one speaks. I, this is like an alien dream. Like yeah, you wake yeah. up in the spaceship. No one speaks your language. There's a weird child for some reason, <laughs> and he may be smoking child. a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> His chest had been torn open, along with nine broken ribs, a broken collarbone, and a broken jaw. As the doctor leaned over him to examine the damage, he held his cigar with about two inches of ash on it right over his opened chest. The doctor stitched up what he could, but wasn't able to offer any anesthetics other than more wine. As all the anesthesiologists had taken the day off to attend the race, naturally. (laughs) Shortly after, he was transferred to an English-speaking British hospital where he stayed for a month recovering. It was during his final exam during release that he discovered that he had also fractured his neck during the crash. Still, after arriving back home, he resumed racing. The season was pretty exciting. At one point, he was offered the chance to compete in a 12-hour race in Italy where he had an unfortunate meeting with a cow that eventually (laughs) took him out of the race. Later in the season, he also met King Feisler of Iraq, a charming young man, uh, and they would later become really close friends. You can't just mention an unfortunate meeting with a cow and not say what happened. Like, did the The cow cow like... like, look... The deal didn't go through. Yeah. Oh, that's so unfortunate. (laughs) I was really counting on that deal. (laughs) (laughs) Along with all his trophies, Hamilton was given an engraved clock. When a clock company was phoned to provide details on the engraving, the engraver said, Duncan Hamilton, how can he still be alive? As it turned out, Hamilton had served under the engraver in Africa. According to Hamilton, the clock was one of his most treasured possessions. After the season ended and he had returned home, he found himself slowly growing more disillusioned with racing. As he put it, quote, I began to wonder if the life I led was the right life for me. Was it sensible to risk one's all and perhaps the future of one's family to satisfy a competition urge to go faster and faster? When my mother-in-law asked me why I did it, was I as unconvinced by my answers as she was? After all, I had shared the winning car at Le Mans and achieved my racing ambition. Why go on and risk a repetition of my crash in the Portuguese Grand Prix? Unfortunately, Hamilton would soon learn that danger exists in more places than just the racetrack. On the evening of December 21st, 1953, while driving with his manager, Ken Atkins, Hamilton and Atkins were run off the road by someone piloting a stolen lorry or truck the mark 7 jaguar (laughs) spun three times knocked down a bus stop broke open and ejected both hamilton and ken when he came to he was sitting on the spare wheel with ken slumped over his knees both of them were hurt but not fatally both were discharged from the hospital a few days later but not before the press got a hold of the story news spread that both occupants of the jaguar had been killed and letters of condolence poured in Indeed, I could claim, as Mark Twain said, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Whenever, mm-hmm. he, whenever he received a letter of condolence from a priest he was friends with, he signed it with, looking forward to seeing you soon. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's a power move. Yeah. Hamilton continued to race in Le Mans for the next couple of years, and he continued to do GP races on the side. In 1957, Hamilton placed sixth in his Le Mans D-type, but that was okay because Jaguar D-types still filled still filled the first, second, third, fourth, and sixth positions on the leaderboard. The same year, an accident involving a close friend helped shape 
his continued view of the sport. During the 1957 coup du salon at Montlaret, at what is that word? At at Montlaret, the race was marred by two fatal accidents. One involving a Maserati driver that flew off a bank turn at speed and fell 30 feet into the paddock below, and the other involving his close friend Louis Rose. Louis Rosier. Rosier survived for three weeks after the accident until he succumbed to his injuries. Louis' death had a profound and devastating impact on Hamilton. I wondered whether the thrill and excitement of the race was worthwhile when it so often ended like this. One thing I am sure of, however, Louis would have been the last person to complain. Nevertheless, for those of us who knew him, the season had ended on a very sad note. The following season, he was informed from the French government that he would be receiving the, I apologize for the pronunciation, guys. The Can I do this? Yeah. Receiving the Medaille d'Or l'Education Physique et des Sports. Thank you, Joe. An award that had been made in recognition of his services to motorsport and Hamilton's contributions to British prestige at Le Mans. That they should add a medal to all of the pleasure it had given me appeared almost unfair. Oh, give me a pleasure medal. <laughs> <laughs> In 1958, Hamilton was invited back to the mall by Jaguar yet again. And during the race, there was a pileup that was not visible to Hamilton. I might have joined the pileup and had it not been for a Frenchman who threw his hat on the road in front of me, I would have done so. This Frenchman and I have never been able to find out who he was saved my life. Later in the race, the windshield of a panhard had missed it up and the driver had stopped in the middle of the course because he was unable to see. Hamilton ended up putting his car in the grass to avoid him, colliding with the barrier and somersaulting the car. He was knocked unconscious and ejected from the vehicle, falling into a ditch filled with water. If it wasn't for two Frenchmen who were nearby, he would have drowned. While he miraculously only ended up with some severe bruising, it helped steal his fate in the sport. Yeah, he's after that, he's just like, screw this, dude. Crashed too many times for too many dumb reasons. Why yeah. did that guy stop in the middle of the course? He must have honestly, it sounds like the chocolate guy from the the Ford Ferrari episode. Mm-hmm. Like really only a rookie would make that kind of move. Um, yeah, you can only be thrown out of so many cars. Oh. And he was thrown out of a lot of cars. Yeah, he was thrown out of like a lot. Yeah, so many experience. cars. After hanging up his racing helmet and gloves in 1959, Hamilton got really into yachting. He especially loved his 38-foot yacht. But more importantly, he began focusing on his own business. Back in 1948, <laughs> Hamilton's love of motoring led him to create his own business called Duncan Hamilton & Co. Limited. And to this day, his company is one of the most globally respected in historic cars, and you can find plenty mm. of amazing race cars and ex racers uh, for sale on their website. So check them out. Duncan Hamilton, a lot of goofs and gags, but great dude, yeah. historic man. The thing that sets Duncan Hamilton apart from other drivers is his reasoning behind doing it at all. He didn't do it for the money or the fame. He did it for his own love of the sport, and he did it at a time when it was possible for people to own their own race cars and go as far as to win at Le Mans. Once racers began losing the ability to be private owners and still be competitive, he decided it was finally time for him to leave. He participated in what is widely regarded as the golden age of racing, earning the true title of Gentleman 
racer, James Duncan Hamilton. What a wacky doodle. Wacky doodle. Love the story. A lot of, lot of fun. We had a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot, lot of fun. I think he just wanted to have fun, and and when once it got too serious, and he started getting thrown out of literally every car that he drove. Yeah, uh, on and off the track. Like, <laughs> yeah, then he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna just stop." Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to the Pass Gas Podcast. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and give us a subscribe. Subscribe to our other channel, Donut Media. Uh, <laughs> follow. <laughs> Follow Nolan across social media at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at James Pumphrey. Yeah. I love you. Be kind. And remember to fire it up. (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.